So what's up, everybody? This is Gus from Gus Villa Jewelry. Welcome to the Let's Talk Bling podcast. I started this podcast because I wanted to kind of um, peel back the curtain on the day and like everyday operations of a jeweler, of a person who owns a jewelry business, who doesn't necessarily like all things considered, doesn't necessarily know what they're doing all the time, you know, and I wanted to create this sort of platform to not only talk to people that I would find interesting, but to also, you know, let people know kind of what I'm all about in the sense of like my everyday life. And, you know, because a lot of times I think that I hear or, uh, you know, what's perceived on YouTube and what's perceived on Instagram and Facebook is just the highlight reel, right? And this is kind of what I always talk about. Like these are times where people, you know, have this sort of admiration for other people that they see on Instagram that are really, really big, but they only really see the popular sides of them, the 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 good times, so to speak. And so I, I, I do this podcast so that I could show you kind of like what really goes on. So this particular podcast in particular, uh, even though I said that twice in a row, uh, is episode two. And it's something that I really talked about or really, really struggled with, uh, whether I really wanted to do it or not, because I usually, like many others, kind of just show uh, the highlight reel. And, you know, I thought to myself, bro, like if you really want to do this podcast and you really want to bring people in, you kind of have to tell your story and how you started and 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 the real struggles behind your whole journey. So this podcast is going to be my story, right? It's going to be how I started this thing, how I got to the point where I'm at now and I'm obviously nowhere near where I want to be, but I wanted to tell everybody exactly what I went through. And it's not to a pity story or it's not kind of like this um how do I explain it like this showing off or boasting about where I'm at because like I said I'm not where I want to be but it's more of just kind of telling people where I came from um you know maybe this touches someone else that's kind of was in my situation a couple of years ago uh, someone that's gone through struggles, someone that's gone through a fuckload of struggles, I won't lie to you, um, and someone that's gone through a lot of ups and downs, and maybe there's someone sitting out there in a car or that's sitting out there in kind of a similar situation I was and says, you know what, man, like this, if, if, he, if a guy like this can do it, you know, so can I, and maybe my story will reach out to someone and say, you know what, maybe it gives them that extra nudge that they need to maybe start a project that is eventually going to get them into financial freedom. Uh, maybe it's going to get them out of a situation that they don't necessarily like with a nine to five job. Maybe it's going to get them out of a situation uh, right now where they, you know, have all these dreams and they see someone already at the end of the road. And they don't really know how to connect the dots between quitting their job and actually doing it. They just see someone out there, you know, with a brand that already exists and they say, man, I wish I can get there, but I don't really know how to do it. And so I want to tell my story because I want to let people know that you can do it. You know what I mean? And that I was exactly in the same shoes as a lot of people. And 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 I ate a lot of shit to get to where I'm at. But ultimately, uh, you know, the, the messages of positivity. So I'm going to have a couple of sips of my drink real quick and then uh, we'll get this party started. Let's do this. 
All right, so what's up, guys? Once again, this is Gus from Gus Villa Jewelry. Uh, I'll start this podcast off, like I said, I'm going to be telling my story. Um, hopefully, it's entertaining to you guys. It is going to be uh, quite rambly, but I feel like as much details as I could possibly give you, that's kind of what I want to do uh, because I want to be as transparent as possible. So ultimately, without, <laughs> without sounding too, too weird about it, uh, my name actually isn't Gus Villa. It, that's an abbreviation for my full name. Uh, my name is Gustavo Villalobos, so I just grabbed the Gus and the Villa just to make things easier because I know a lot of people can't really pronounce my name. And so I am the son of immigrant parents that migrated to this country. My father is a full-blooded Colombian man, and my mother is Argentinian. Shout out to the World Cup winners of 2022. It's been a long journey for us to get here, so I just wanted to pause and shout out my mother, who's uh, you know an Argentinian woman, and uh, we, we are World Cup champions, so... Uh, but yeah, they they migrated to this country uh, many years ago in the 80s. And just like any other parents that came to this country struggling, uh, trying to live the American dream, my parents met at a house party. <laughs> kind of, There wasn't Tinder. There wasn't uh, plenty of fish or all these you know apps that are coming out now. They met the old-fashioned way. My dad went up to my mom and was like, hey, can I buy you a drink at this? You no, know, buy you a drink, but like, let me get you a drink at a house party. And that's how they met, you know, and they had me and my brother, I have an older brother and a younger sister. And we grew up here in Miami. You know, we're Miami boys through and through, uh, my brother and my sister and I, and I had a pretty, you know, average lifestyle uh, growing up. You know, I wasn't necessarily had all the things that I, you know, wanted, but I had a nice stable house. I grew up with my mom and my dad married. They've been married 40 plus years. And so I grew up kind of an average kid. You know, I didn't have, like I said, all the financial things that I necessarily wanted, but there was always kind of food on the table. So it wasn't something that, you know, I remember being very, very poor or anything like that. Um, but I did grow up with my struggles, right? So I, I, I grew up here in Miami, like I said, and I always, my mom always tells me kind of the same thing that I always had this interest for selling. I can tell you for sure one of my biggest passions is actually selling things. And you'll later on find out how this ultimately incorporates into the lifestyle that I have now. Um, you know, pretty pedestrian type of life till growing up. And around the time that I got to 18 or 19 is really where this story begins because I I got a job. I remember uh, the ad when I applied to it said it was a sports marketing job. And so when I remember talking to one of my best friends, uh, shout out to Mike out there. And I remember telling him we both applied for the same job. And he told me basically like, hey, man, you know, I, I found this job on uh, I think it was like uh, Indeed or something crazy like that. I didn't even think Indeed worked uh, at the time. I think it may have been like Craigslist. Shout out to Craigslist for all the old heads who have no idea what even Craigslist is. It's the shady website that existed back in the day um, that got shut down because of like illicit sex ads, <laughs> by the way. So it's kind of weird, but they used to do job postings and they had like this sports marketing uh, job post. So I thought I was going to be like, you know, the next, uh, you know, I, I don't know, sports agent. And that's what I thought it was going to be like. And when I end up showing up, uh, it ends up being this cold calling job. 
And I don't notice that it's this cold calling job until I start actually working it. So the first day, so the interview process goes, they don't tell you anything. You just sit down and they tell you, oh yeah, you know, like we do sports marketing and we do all the marketing, uh, face-to-face marketing for all these big time clients. And yes, they did have some big time clients like the Florida Panthers, but they don't exactly tell you what you're doing. And then they tell you, oh yeah, come back tomorrow. Uh, you know, you got the, you got the second interview, just come back tomorrow. We'll see how you work out. So, of course, I show up the next day and I jump into this lady's car and we go out to like this place in like North Broward. And the place, I mean, right from the get, you realize very quickly that this is a, you know, cold calling job or or what they call business to business marketing. But really what it was is this lady had a pamphlet of Florida Panther tickets, which are these hockey tickets. And she, you know, without me knowing, she's like, hey, how you doing? She kind of get, gets to know me in this car. She swings open the door to her car, walks out, and she's like, okay, well, just follow me. And I'm like, all right, that's kind of shady. You know what I'm saying? So we go into like this this corporate park in the middle of like North Broward. If you guys are familiar with this area, this is like, you know, basically the Boca area. That it's It's just nothing but like corporate parks and offices or whatever. And we step out of the car and we just swing open this door. And I think this lady has an appointment with somebody behind the counter. And she just starts talking, rattling off her sales pitch to get these guys to buy Panther tickets. Really, that's what it was. I mean, it was pretty crazy the way it started, you know. And I was like, what? the flying shit I got myself into. You know, I'm here thinking that this is going to be, you know, I'm going to be a sports marketer and I'm like talking to these random receptionists, which are all kicking us out of the offices, you know? And so like, I realized very quickly that what I am doing is straight up like B2B, like cold calling. I'm just walking in, I'm soliciting a thousand percent Uh, These people's businesses, I have no appointment. I'm walking in there with this lady and I am learning like she is just pitching in 30 seconds before they kick her out, maybe loud projecting her voice loud enough to where someone is going to find interest in these Panther tickets. Now, if you're from South Florida or you've been you, you know, you grew up, you know, south of Orlando, you realize that, yeah, they're the Florida Panthers. But, you know, we have no hockey culture down here. Right. Like we are. It's all about the heat. It's all about the dolphins. It's all about the canes, right? Like, we don't give a flying rat's ass about the Panthers. And more so hockey, right? So, number one, we're a fickle fan base at best. And now you're going to tell us to go see hockey where it's like 80 degrees all year round. This is a tough sell, my guy, right? This is tough at best, right? That's me putting it lightly. So, Needless to say, the first couple of hours, we're just getting absolutely ransacked, kicked out of these places. But some way, somehow, and this is, I guess, what tips my the scale into the positive side, this lady who is interviewing me, but really I'm just kind of sticking around and just shadowing her, manages to sell like six to nine pamphlets of these things, man. And some way, somehow, she convinces a random person she just met to pay $30 for 10 tickets. This was the deal. $30 for 10 tickets sitting in the mezzanine level. And I always remember that because it's a pitch that I was just like, what the, what is it? What is a mezzanine level, number one? But number two, 
how the hell did you get someone to spend $30 just randomly while you walked in there with a pamphlet of tickets and actually buy this crap, right? I'm like, who the, like this, okay, you got to understand, the people that we're buying this to or selling it to are random people. They're not Panthers fans, right? But what she was able to do was create some sort of emotional connection within three to five minutes of the conversation. She has no idea who these people were but creates a level of emotion that triggers into her painting the picture. So what I would see was she would see a random lady and she wouldn't pitch it to that lady the exact same way that she would pitch it to someone else. And so she began to cater to who she was speaking to. And it was the first time I had ever seen a person, number one, do a live sale in front of me, a cold sale. But at the same time, cater this this sale to each person that she was with mind you i had had like these crappy you know i worked at a movie theater before that i was a bag boy at the winn dixie on 49th street in hialeah if people know who they're talking about like you'll know exactly what that 49 it's a fresco right now that should still exist to this day you know what i'm saying so this is the kind of jobs i had and when i moved on to this job this was the first time i had to i had to see someone be or I was able to see someone be manipulated, not manipulated, I should say, but be sold to. That That's really what I want to say. So someone that had no idea what the Panthers even were, but this lady would come in and she would sell them in a way where now, you know, 10 minutes ago, I was thinking about the opera show or the, you know, uh, or the Oprah show, I'm <laughs> sorry, the Oprah show. And now all of a sudden, now I'm thinking about what this lady's telling me about you know taking my family to go see a Panthers game, right? So I go from having no experience with sales to just abruptly the most hardcore sale that you can do. Other than, you know, I'm sure there's more hardcore sales out there, but it's it was to me it was something that I was like, "Oh my god, this is so cool," right? And I know that most people like would have probably sent you know, this company lady, please just, you know, go, go fuck yourself. Like, I'm not going to go over there and, and watch you sell Panther tickets, you know, for, for basically nothing. But to me, it was something that was fascinating because it was the ability to be able to walk into somewhere, command the presence and convince someone, even though you had to go through about 80 no's a day, but eventually you were going to get to that one person that you could possibly make a connection with and sell to. So I left that day thinking, oh my God, like I want to be a Panther salesperson, <laughs> which now that I think about it, is just the most ridiculous thing that I could have possibly thought about at the time. But I came back the next day and then the next day and then the next day and then the next day. And then eventually I had to graduate with, with, with what was called at the time my day of all, which was my, my big day. It was your day that you had to go out there and do this thing on your own. And of course, I mean, lo and behold, first day, I, I mean, I bombed my guy, right? I was a disaster out there. No, I mean, I sucked. I couldn't smile right. I couldn't get the pitch down. I mean, I was absolutely fumbling all my words. It was just abysmal, right? Abysmal. But little by little, I began to realize and, and become a chameleon in different types of situations. And I got my first sale. And then I got two sales and then three sales and then five and then 10. And the goal was always to do 10 a day. 
But then I started getting really good, like really good, because I became obsessed with the psychology behind a sale. And that really was the spawn of what ultimately has gotten me to the point right now. I went from having no sales experience to having the most craziest school of hard knocks on how to actually sell to someone. Because usually people go to sales school or they read a sales book or whatever, but there's nothing like walking into a room knowing that you are a solicitor, right? Because you know you, you see the signs everywhere, no soliciting, right? Knowing that you are a solicitor walking into this particular office or wherever the hell you was they were and 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 convincing someone of something that you want them to buy right that i you know i credit that to this day to this day i use these tools that i learned on how to speak to people on how to cater to someone uh, you know i would learn things i remember on an everyday basis that that this lady would teach me and she would be like you know, the most important thing that you can always do is read someone's name tag because you're going to catch them off guard, right? So even right now, if I get out of a valet and I walk out, I read their name tag inconspicuously, and then I repeat their name to them because I know that it's going to catch them off guard. So I would get off and I'd be like, oh, his name's Roger. I come out, hey, Roger, what's up, man? How are you doing? And I shake their hand, look them in the eye and give them a smile. And I knew that that would break people's barriers down. And that's how I was able to sell. So if I walked in and someone had their name on their office, they would be sitting down. Let's say the reception name was Angie something. I'd walk in there, hey, Angie, how you doing? So I wouldn't even say their name. I would say their nickname, right? I would memorize people's names because I knew that that was going to take down their their barrier, right? Their, their, their immediate no, go fuck yourself, get out of here before I call security. And they would just, at the very least, hear me out, even if it was for 10, 15 seconds. I also learned, more importantly, how to say or how to uh, accept someone saying no to me. And I think that was the biggest one because that later on helped me on in so many things that I did constantly. I learned how to take rejection right in the chin. And there's nothing more humbling than someone, you know, you could be on the phone or whatever, and someone says, Oh, you know, no, I'm not interested in it hangs up the phone. And that's one thing, right? But there's another thing you walking into somewhere and someone telling you no on the spot, right? I feel like that is is a harder rejection to swallow. At least for me, it was, you know, maybe it's not for some people, you know, et cetera. But for me, I felt that it taught me how to take a no and to keep moving forward because ultimately all this was was a numbers game. I had to talk to enough people to where eventually I would get one middle-aged woman or maybe an owner who, who had some kids that the situation matched up correctly. And I was able to sell them some crappy Panther tickets uh, for them to sit in the, the mezzanine level for 30 bucks. And they would get, you know, five or 10 or whatever the hell the tickets was. I can't remember that. But that was my first introduction to sales, right? Once I did that, I realized after a year that, you know, I, you know, I was going to get to the place, the situation I was in. So I had already failed in, in, in school. I went to school for a year, realized that it was just absolute trash, got into insane debt uh, because of it, quit, started that job. And then eventually I realized that, okay, cool. Now I have this skill. What can I possibly do with it? Right? So you know, a couple years went by and I won't go through all that crap because it's really nothing really major happened. But right about the time that I hit 27 or something, something like that, 
I realized I was at a pivotal point in my life where I was searching for something that I just wasn't finding in my cushy job. I was working at the time at a place called T-Mobile. It's a, you know, everybody knows what T-Mobile is. They've been bought out by Sprint. I don't really know how that goes, but I was working at T-Mobile just being a regular pedestrian life. But in the back of my mind, I knew I always wanted to own a business. And I was working at T-Mobile, just kind of doing my everyday kind of thing. And one of my boys, I remember where I was, I went to Olita Park, which if you're familiar with it, with, with, you know, Miami area, it's a park out in North Miami. And we went and we rented kayaks and we went out there and we went out to like this island. It was just me and him. We grabbed a couple beers and we're like, oh, let's slam some beers and like, let's talk some shit out there. And he told me that he had a, um, a friend of his whose wife at the time, brother, so a friend's wife's brother lived in Nepal and started a, a music school. And so he went and he told me, hey, bro, like, I think that you should definitely come with me because I'm going to go visit him in Nepal. And I had this, you know, T-Mobile job that was paying okay. I really didn't have anything going for me. I'm an uneducated or non-college educated Latino male. Uh, didn't really have much going for me. I was 25 years old. And, you know, at the time I was thinking to myself, like, bro, like, nah, like, you know, I want to, I want to, you know, stay in Miami and I want to do this, you know, I want to build a business and all this, but I had no idea what the hell I was doing. And I was slowly convinced little by little for my, for my boy after that conversation to just get up and go. But I know that I didn't want to just leave for, you know, two weeks that he had planned. I knew that I wanted to stay out there for a while. So for the next two to three weeks, essentially what I did was have this crazy internal battle with myself on what it was that I wanted to do. And did I want to go out there in Nepal? What did I have going with me? You know, what, like it was like putting things on a scale. I, at one point, you know, I had my parents who, you know, worked their asses off to, you know, get me to where I was. I'm living in this country that has all these endless opportunities. I speak the language fluently. I speak English and Spanish. I could be doing so much with my time and my effort and, you know, all these sacrifices that they made. Like, what am I doing with that? Right. And then the other part of me was like, bro, you're still young and you have all this time ahead of you at 25. I'm thinking like, oh, my God, you know, at this point, I I thought I was going to have a corner office as a lawyer uh, sitting somewhere in some, you know, big building in Brickle. And what I'm doing is slanging cell phones for forty dollars, you know, uh, you know, a prepaid plan, you know, so I'm not I don't have anything going for me. And I sat there and I thought, man, like. You know, if I could just go on this trip and and really just discover who I am as a person and find myself as as stupid and as cliche and as Instagram and YouTube cliche as that sounds, it, it was a pivotal moment in my life where I didn't really know what the hell I was doing. So I remember sitting there at the time and thinking, okay, what the hell do I have to lose? So prior to that, I had, uh, uh, you know, they, AT&T, and anyone can Google this, T-Mobile was going to merge with AT&T. So they gave a bunch of stocks to the employees that had been there for a long time. And I had gotten, I got like $3,000 or $4,000. I grabbed all my money and I dumped it into an IPO at the time that was called GoPro. And I said, you know what, man, if this shit hits, like I'm going to grab all this money and I'm going to get the hell out of here. 
And so I did. I grabbed the money that they gave me on that bonus. I sold my car. I dumped all of it in GoPro. And within 12 months, I almost quadrupled my money. And I said, the hell with this. I booked a ticket with my boy and we left to Nepal. And, and, and I said, the hell with it. And I started an Instagram, that which you can guys can Google right now. We'll put it up on the Instagram. It's called 90 Days in Asia because my oh – God, it's such a terrible Instagram. My thought process was, okay, I'm going to go to Asia. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do Nepal for two weeks, but then I'm going to keep traveling. And those 90 days, what they turned into eventually was 18 months of me traveling. And it was the best 18 months of my life by far. Because not only did I have a freedom that I don't think I've put a probably ever had in any part of my life, but it was a freedom for me to not only discover who the hell I was by putting me in very adverse situations, but I think at the same time, it, it, it gave me this sense of a lot of people grow up in areas and they, you know, they say that like you live your whole entire life within a 10 mile radius of where you're from. So wherever you grow up, you're pretty much going to go to the, you know, most people do. And so you think that ultimately life is like that, right? You think that like the bigger problems that are going to be in your life are, you know, your friends talking trash or like your boyfriend that does this or your girlfriend that does that or whatever, whatever the case may be is you realize very, very quickly when you travel that the world is bigger than Hialeah, Florida. Right. And for the people, like I said, I keep saying the people that are down here from Miami, Hialeah is this this real Cuban populated part of Western Miami. And, you know, it's very easy to get consumed in the everyday life of Hialeah or just your friends here. And and ultimately, you think that, like, this is it. Right. This is life. Life is just my everyday trajectory of going to work, coming back home and nuking my my supper. <laughs> to, to reference a uh, Mark Wahlberg line off of a, a movie, basically it's it's very just kind of remedial, right? And you think that these problems that you face on an everyday basis are important, but you realize that like life is much much bigger than that. Life is much more complex, and you are just a small little itty bitty piece of shit living in you know, some crib in Hialeah and I, and I'm really nothing, right? I started visiting these countries and I would, you know, meet cool ass people that were traveling in Indonesia and Bali. And I went to Thailand and uh, I went to Cambodia and Laos and, and in Cambodia, I saw some just super dark, dark stuff. Sorry. Uh, I went to some, I saw some really, really dark stuff from like the, the genocide that had happened out there. And I saw real, real poverty, like just insane stuff that I think a lot of people, especially in the U.S., need to be prevy of because ultimately what we do is we live in this bubble, right? We think that the world revolves around the U.S. and not to get too political about it. It's more so like a philosophy of life. Like, you know, I didn't realize any of these things were happening at the same time that I'm, you know, struggling with, that, I don't know, an activations that, that month, I'm over here thinking that that's you know, really rough because I can't meet my quota at my T-Mobile job. And the reality is that people are out there really actually struggling on the other side of the world and going through some real harsh shit, you know? And so for me to realize that it was 
very, very hard on my psyche. And for months, I was having a great time, but then I would go to sleep and I'd be like, man, like I am insanely lucky with what I have going on, right? I am I am taking my life a thousand percent per, for, for granted, right? These opportunities that my parents went to, because I ended up living in Australia and I know the language in Australia, but yet as an immigrant American who went to Australia, to live there because they had this, um, they had this th this visa to where it was called the um, work holiday visa. And if you were under the age of thirty, you could live in Australia for a year as an American, and pay taxes and have a regular job. And you can go. You, you were just a, basically a citizen for a year, but you had to go after a year, right? But they wanted people to come work from the U.S. and they have it with other countries as well, where you could just live there. So I lived there for eight months, and even in Australia, I lived and worked through a lot of the struggles of an immigrant living in a different country. So I sat there and thought to myself, man, like if I'm going through this, I speak the language. I came with a little bit of money from traveling. Like imagine what my mom and what my dad did to get here. You know, they got here. My dad, you know, full disclosure, my dad had to come here and marry his best friend's wife for papers because he couldn't get here. And he didn't have the opportunity that, I have now, you know, in Colombia, you know, he didn't go through that. So he had to come down to Miami, risk everything, give up his entire family. He's a, the oldest brother of 10 brothers and sisters, and he's the oldest one. So he has to provide to all of them. He had to say, you know what, I'm going to be in a way selfish to, to, to give myself an opportunity to live here in the States. My mother is the youngest of four brothers and sisters, and she came over here, again, not having nothing to her name. You know, I think my dad tells me this story all the time where he had like five or seven dollars to his name, you know, and they came all the way over here to a country where they didn't know the language. You know, my mom's been here 40 years and her English is, I mean, it's chopped up at best, you know, and I always make fun of her. God bless her soul, but love her to death. But like, again, you're coming to a country where you don't know anyone, you don't have any friends and you're doing it. You have, you find another person, which is, you know, my mother, and my father found each other and they gave each other a chance. They struggled all this insane adversity to have my brother and my sister just so that we can have a chance at this, right? And and I started thinking about that stuff. And like, I started thinking about all the struggles that they went to just so that I can get a chance to do something with my life. And so I realized very quickly as I was traveling, even before coming back, that like, I had to do something, right? I had to do, I couldn't allow my parents to have all these insane struggles that they did. And for me to just be some you know, regular dude that just kind of, you know, earns a little bit. And, you know, I, and it's not even about the money. It was more so like, I wanted my parents to be like, okay, cool. Like I came to this country to give my kids a better shot and they took advantage of it. Right. So that being the mentality and that being kind of where my mind was at when I was traveling, I came back home and I didn't really know what to do. You know, I came back I had been traveling for 18 months. I had long hair. I looked like a, I mean, just, I was a hideous human being. Like I'll put a picture on the board 
Uh, I don't even want to show this picture, but look, look at me. I had long hair. I was probably like, <laughs> to be fair, I was probably like 60 pounds lighter as well. Uh, you know, I had this huge beard. Um, a lot of my old friends know what I'm talking about, but I came here and I was just, you know, came back with this hunger and, and, and this new vision of where I wanted to go and what I wanted to do. But I had all this energy. I didn't have really money because you don't really make money when you're in Australia and when you're traveling. So I came back essentially broke, no education. And I came back with just hunger, you know, hunger and appreciation for not only my parents, um, but I think I came back with a new mentality on how to look at certain situations. I had had this job before where I was soliciting and then I, I you know, I had this corporate job where I was working at T-Mobile and I just didn't really know where to go from that. So I reached out to one of my friends, uh, you know, and his name is uh, MJ and he got me a job once again back at T-Mobile because it's the only thing I knew. Right. I didn't have an education. I couldn't just be like, oh, well, I'm a lawyer. So let me just go to another law firm. I'm a doctor. Let me just go to another you know, medical center. So I got us. I got a job again working at T-Mobile. And at this, you know, at, at this place, I started to look at things on Instagram. And this is really the biggest pivotal point in my life because it's essentially where I change. Right. Where, where everything changes for me. I will remember being in the stock room of T-Mobile and I remember being in the back room and I had my phone and I would just scroll through Instagram. This is very, very early on in the Instagram world. Didn't really know, you know, things were a lot different. The Explorer pages were a lot different. They didn't have reels. Things were very weird, you know, and, and things were very experimental, I think. And I remember seeing this Instagram and it was called cats of Instagram. And that Instagram still exists, I think, to this day. I'm pretty sure. I don't really know if it does or not, but we'll try to see if we can find it for you. But at the time, all they would do was show pictures of cats on Instagram. That's it. That's That was the big thing, right? And I had this huge beard at the time, and I had like this long hair. And so I said, you know what, man? I'm going to create an Instagram that's called Gnarly Beards of Instagram. And that was it. And so I remember being in the stock room. I remember sitting there and creating the Instagram name. And I grabbed, of course, I didn't have any content. I didn't have anything. I didn't even know what content was, bro. I like, I was lost, lost. And I created this, this Instagram account and I reposted things that I was able to find on Instagram. Just, uh, I'm sorry, on Google. And I just Googled up a bunch of beards. And I was like, you know what, man? Like, this is just going to be funny. I'm just going to make like this account. And I created this Instagram account. It was called Gnarly Beards of Instagram. I posted three pictures. And because of the hashtags that I got, I got instantly back in the day, if you posted the right content or the posted the right hashtags, you would get like just random people just to like your picture. And the first three pictures that I ever got, I got like four or five likes on them. And I remember that that essentially changed my life because... I began to become obsessive over creating and building this Instagram, gnarly beard of Instagram. And so the story goes that, you know, that week I remember posting, I didn't even post a picture of myself. I would look up at the hashtag beard because the only thing I could think of to create content. And I would find what was the wildest beard of a guy that I could find, right? So sometimes who knows what it was, but it was just usually people would 
you know, hashtags were a lot more important back then, but they would post like, okay, beard, right? And then so they would have this huge beard. And I remember at the time I used to look up the hashtag. I used to like every single picture on beard. Um, and, and I would find the beard that I found the biggest. And I would repost them and I would call it gnarly beard of the day. And this Instagram doesn't exist anymore because it got banned many, many years ago. Uh, I don't even know why. I think it was because at the time I was using automation tools to to, to try to like make it bigger. But uh, at the time I created it and it was my first time that I created something that was mine and that I had a following behind it, right? It was something that people were like w interested in. And then days and months and time went by and and this gnarly beard of the day became like this kind of i wouldn't say an internet phenomenon because it certainly was not <laughs> let's let me just uh you know bring my feet down to earth right it was a time where gnarly beard uh, you know it, it was something that at least at the very least someone or multiple people were posting pictures and selfies of themselves and they would say hey is this gnarly beard of the day quality and I would never reveal my face. It was just, I would just post this gnarly beard and then I would do like a beard a day and then this gnarly beard. And people would wait for this gnarly beard of the day because they wanted to be featured on the page. And I got the page up all the way up to 50,000 followers. I think it was something like that, which at the time was huge. I didn't do it with any shout outs. I didn't do it with influencers. The, the thought of an influencer wasn't even like, it didn't even exist. It was just something that people were who had beards would gravitate to it and had a platform where they would submit this, you know, these things to. Um, and it got really, really big. But what it taught me and more importantly of what it taught me was how to effectively sell and grow something on social media. So how it abruptly ended, and this is the one of the biggest lessons of my life, I think, to this day is I got down to about 35,000 followers, which again, at the time, you have to understand, this is a lot of followers. At least for me, it was. Maybe maybe there were, I'm sure there were much bigger accounts, but to me, it was something that was very, very big. And so I said, okay, how do I monetize this, right? I'm working at T-Mobile. Again, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm trying to find something that I could possibly do where I can own the business. So I'm, I, I said, all right, well, I'm gonna sell T-shirts. How the hell do I sell t-shirts? So I paid this guy who I found on Instagram, again, to create three logos for me, right? It was just three regular logos, nothing crazy. It was my logo. It was like another couple of things that I, that I came up with. And I said, I'm going to come up with a couple of shirts. And that was it. I said, I'm going to make three shirts and I'm, I'm going to sell them out because I have 35,000 followers. Look how much of an idiot I was. I have 35,000 followers. And even if I get 10% of them, right? Which was 3,500. Even if I get 1% of them, that's 350 shirts. I'm going to make it happen and I'm going to sell out on all these shirts. And so I went to my dad and I asked him for a $10,000 loan. And I asked my mom and my, my parents, again, they're not, you know, wealthy parents, you know, so to $10,000 is something that's a lot. But what my dad told me was like, Hey man, if you really think that this is happening for you, you know, I'm going to take out money out of my 401k and I'm going to lend you these $10,000 so that you can buy shirts so that you can sell them because that was my plan. I wanted to make a shirt out of it. I figured if only, you know, 1% of them buy all these shirts, then I am going to, you know, sell shirts and I'm going to be a fashion brand owner of a beard 
company, right? That was it. And then eventually I was going to get into oils and all this other crap. But for what I was going to start, I was going to pull $10,000. So my dad, you know, uh, again, not having it, takes out this money and he gives it to me in a check. And I deposit it in my very first bank account that I opened up from Bank of America. And I put this $10,000 in there. And I dumped about 8,000 of it. Truth be told, my dad doesn't know this till this day. I spent about $2,000 like a jerk off at the club, you know, <laughs> absolutely not being a good entrepreneur. Again, I was young and I was an idiot, right? But like spent $2,000 of it uh, stupidly. And then the other $8,000, I dumped it all in these shirt designs. And I printed these 400 shirts or 300 shirts and I said, all right, here comes my big debut. I got, you know, at the time I had like almost 40,000 followers and like, I'm going to make all this hype and it's, I'm going to be, I'm going to be fucking, I don't know, the, the next Pharrell of like shirt making or whatever, you know? And I do it and the release comes around and I got my homegirl who had a bunch of tattoos and I was like, I'm going to take pictures of you and like all this craziness that I thought was going to be awesome and that I was going to do this. And I had all this inventory stacked up in my room and I had unfolded and I was like, oh, well, you know, I'm going to sell out. And I'm going to handwrite all these letters to everyone. And at the time, there was this website called Big Cartel. I don't even know if it exists or not, but I put all the shirts on there, all the pictures. And here comes my big ass debut. And I said, these shirts are going to be released at 12 p.m. on a certain day. And I thought it was going to be like the sneakers app. You know what I mean? People were going to be bidding to like try to find, you know, like, you know, chomping at the at the teeth to try to get these shirts. And I remember going to Publix and I was like, I don't even want to look at the numbers because I'm going to, you know, my head's going to get too big. I'm going to sell too many of them. So I went to Publix, which is like a, like a grocery shop. I'm just going to buy groceries and like, I'll just see the notifications come in. And like, you know, I'm again, I'm, you know, I'm Elon Musk of, uh, of shirt designs. Right. And I remember going to a uh, thing and then it, it was, it was 12 o'clock clock strikes 12. This thing is live. I put the post up and I shut my phone off. And I go and I do my shopping. I go around. I was like, I don't even want to look at my phone. Like, it's, this is going to be crazy. And I go to checkout and I look at the shirts. And of the 400 shirts or 450 shirts that I printed, I, I sold seven shirts. Seven shirts. So, and, and I was selling them like 30 bucks. So, like, I made like $210 of a $10,000 loan that I had to pay my dad who took this money out and paid 33% of his 401k on taxes because he wasn't 65. And I now have to pay $10,000 back. And what I have is 210 bucks. That's literally what I have. So needless to say, it was a, it was a God, it was an apocalypse of a business plan and a disaster of an execution, right? I absolutely oversold it. It was horrifying. And now with what face am I going to tell my dad that I'm not going to be able to pay him back? You know, and I still have those shirts. If anybody wants them and listens to this podcast, shoot me a damn. It'll be just pay the shipping. I'm pretty sure they're still in the back of my dad's house, my parents' house, sitting there, just sitting in boxes for over more than 10 years old, these shirts. And, but what it taught me was, number one, how to fail at a business. Number two, how to take on debt. Number three, how to spend it. And number four, and the biggest one was, number like, how to grow an Instagram, but how to realize that what Instagram means, all these followers and all this shit, doesn't translate into actual sales, 
right? That's what I thought. I was like, oh, okay, cool. I have 35,000 people that follow me. That doesn't mean shit, right? What really means something is you having an effective marketing plan that's going to get you there. And that school of me selling these shirts that failed horrendously taught me more than anything I could have ever learned going to school, at least in my opinion, right? I learned real world what it was like to have a dream and to absolutely fail at that dream, right? And so I owed my dad all this money. You know, I I had, uh, you know, this, you know, I really got this motivated from this, you know, Instagram account that I would dedicate so much time with because I figured like all these people are just following me, but they're not actually spending money with me. So it was a real like rude awakening and a real discouraging time in my life because now I was in debt. I had failed at a business horrendously, even though it wasn't even like considered of business, but whatever I thought, I you know, to me, I thought I was, you know, you know, this, this Bill Gates kind of guy, you know what I'm saying? And I had failed. So I had to essentially go back to the drawing board and I had to try to pay my parents back. And so again, I was still continuing to work at, at T-Mobile and I, I essentially got, you know, sick of working there. And I started getting this job, which is, I, I'm, I've heard it, you know, you guys have heard it before. I got this job at a Fortune 500 company. It's a credit card company. I, you guys have heard of it, I'm sure, called American Express. And I got this American Express job thinking that it was a better opportunity for me because I had failed as a business owner. And all these things that I was doing were obviously not working. My Instagram skills were still there, but I really wasn't able to translate that into monetary gains. So I said, all right, well, I still have to pay the bills. I'm still living in Miami. I still like the party. I still want to go out and have beer money. What can I do? So I said, okay, let's get a better job. So I started working at American Express and through a mutual friend, one to the other, I met one of my best friends out there. His name is Carlos. He's the guy actually editing this video right now. His, uh, you'll hear us call him Creepy. Creepy is the his nickname because when we first met him, he had a Instagram account called the Creepy Camera Guy. Or actually, I think we were talking about it or something like that. And we we're like, you know, you should really get up because he used to do these shots where he was kind of like far away or like from a distance. And we're like, man, you got to get in there. You got to get creepy. And so we called him the creepy camera guy. And he opened up an Instagram account called the creepy camera guy. So now we call him creepy. And I met him uh, through one of my friends, episode one podcast through Mellow. And they worked together and we we kind of clicked. And, and it was, you know, kind of like friendship in from the very beginning. And. At the time, again, I was working at American Express, and my my good friend was working at a, as a DJ, or he was starting to become a DJ. If you guys heard the podcast from before, we'll link it down below so you guys can hear that podcast too on how he became a DJ. But at the time, he was started to become a DJ. I was working at this, you know, this cushy kind of American Express job where I was kind of making money, but there was nothing to scratch that creative itch, right? And so meeting my good friend Creep. Uh, we started doing, uh, he, he was a videographer. Well, he wasn't a videographer. That's, that's me putting it very nicely. He just had a camera and he would just shoot things and we would go to the gigs. Uh, my boy, uh, who was a DJ or an aspiring DJ at the time. And he would just shoot pictures of him and videos and stuff like that. And I said, you know what, man, I'm going to buy a camera and I'm going to do this with you. Right. And so him and I began to shoot videos together and I got, little by little my itch to scratch my creative side of my brain through camera and I actually 
went full dive into videography work. And so little by little, as the months would go by and as the years even went by, you know, we started shooting more and more together. And I created my second business, which we called CNG Media. And CNG Media uh, stood for Carlos and Gus Media. And at the time, you know, it was something where it was cool, you know, and we were the guys that would show up to the clubs with the cameras and take pictures of the hot girls and the videos. And and it was something that him and I would do together. And so we would bond over it. But ultimately, it was something that I once again found an opportunity to maybe build another business around. And so CNG Media was born under my dream and his dream of becoming professional videographers here in the city of Miami. And we thought we were going to have all these gigs and we were going to do all this good stuff together, right? As the months and as the time progressed and we got bigger and bigger and bigger, we actually had a lot of success, uh, believe it or not. I was still working at team uh, at American Express in a very, very corporate style structure job. And I was essentially working both things and everything was kind of working out in the trajectory of me finally being able to cut the corporate ties and become the successful business owner of what I thought it was going to be because we were getting more and more and more clients. We were getting clients in, in the Grove, which is an area here in Miami. We were getting corporate clients and all of this was due to our videography skills. You know, We prided ourselves in doing this video and we were kicking ass and we were doing all this stuff. And little by little, uh, you know, with full disclosure of my good friend who's sitting right in front of me, he got married, you know, and he had a daughter on his way. So he wasn't able to take risks like I was on a business venture. It was no longer, you know, something, you know, keep in mind where we started off was in the clubs. And that's kind of where I got our foot in our door because at the time we had this friend who was becoming a DJ. So we were able to quickly pick up clients doing club videos. So those nights where he would regularly come with me to go shoot a video at 12 o'clock, 3 o'clock in the morning were no longer possible because he had a wife and he had a potential, he had his daughter that was coming out on the way. So I remember at the time feeling like a bit distanced from where the dream was once again. And then that same feeling that I got when I lost my old man's $10,000 happened very abruptly where we were having some sort of success, but we had that conversation with him where he just flat out told me that he just couldn't continue on with the dream that we, him and I had. And he had to take on more serious and more uh, safer ways of doing his life rather than going out every single night on a Saturday to go, you know, shoot some girls shaking their ass at the club. You know what I mean? Like, and, and I, and I, at the time I remember selfishly saying like, damn, like, you know, he betrayed us. He, you know, he betrayed me. Like he wasn't going to be there. But the reality was that if I wanted to maintain the friendship, which is ultimately my goal, I had to understand that that wasn't his dream anymore and that it was just mine. And I remember eating that pill that day. And I remember that conversation and we said, hey, you know what? We're going to split all the gear and we're going to do all this. But I remember specifically thinking, God damn it, dude. Like, 
here we go again. You know, here's this other business that I once again tried to do, but that I failed ultimately once again because I knew that I couldn't do it by myself. He was a much more advanced camera person than I was. He could edit much faster than I was. And he had a vision that I just simply did not have. I was more of like, I'll deal with the clients and then I'll just kind of fudge my way in there. Like I know what I'm doing, which to a certain extent I did, but he was just much more talented than I was. And so I knew that he was really the reason we were getting the gigs. I was just kind of getting, making the connection and, and holding that connection to ultimately become like make a book of clients. So, you know, I, begrudgingly said, you know what, I'm going to just do this myself. And maybe two to three months later, you know, three, four months later of me trying to wing it myself and me realizing that I wasn't like a really good camera guy, (laughs) essentially, I realized that I had to give it up, you know, and I had all this equipment and I had all these dreams and aspirations, yet I still had this corporate job and the corporate job was paying me more and I got less and less gigs And so it's the slowly but heart-wrenching reality of me failing again at a business, you know? Now, what did it teach me? And that's kind of where, like, I sat back and thought about it, just like, you know, my first business venture taught me, what did it teach me? Where did I get to? What, What did I learn, ultimately? And I think what it learned me was just one specific skill, which was camera work. And I was able to combine that camera work specifically with a lot of the things that we would do on a daily basis. Like we would also, I, we also taught ourselves how to build websites. Uh, we taught ourselves how to like create content for other people that ha- we had no idea who they were because that was kind of our, our gigs as well. We would do camera work and then we would also do social media marketing for other people who didn't necessarily have, you know, the wherewithal to take pictures of their food if they were a restaurant, et cetera, et cetera. So it gave me that skill too. Uh, but it also taught me on how to break away from a partnership from a friend and keep that ma- you know keep that relationship and keep that friendship and it also i think more importantly taught me how to ultimately um you know create something that you have a dream with and if that person or that that you know life happens It's okay to pull away and to say, you know what, man, this isn't working. Let's move on different paths. And I think that that took me years to mature and and my vulnerabilities out there of, of, you know, being this guy who's this, you know, winner and like, I'm going to do this and I'm going to, you know, become the next Bill Gates and all this other crazy shit and realize that, you know, this entrepreneur life or this business owner life is hard. And a lot of people don't make it because, it is truly something that you not only have to dedicate your life to, but it's something that you have to be ready to fail. And after the second failure is really where I started realizing, okay, Gus, maybe your life is about this corporate. You know, maybe maybe you do need to be in, you know, maybe, maybe your calling isn't to be a business owner. Maybe your calling is to be in the American Express world and to answer phones and to send emails and to be corporate and to do all this stuff. So once I failed at this corporate stuff or uh, the business owner stuff, I dug deep. You know, I went through some really dark months in my life and I remember them specifically because I sat there and said, okay, you know, I'm not a corporate guy. I'm not at all. I like to curse and I don't like sending emails and I don't really like going up a corporate structure. I don't like anyone telling me what to do. And I know that that's, you know, a lot of things that I, you know, I speak to other 
business owners, and that's kind of one of the bigger ones. I don't like to say anyone's my boss. You know, like I hate the phrase, oh, I have to do this for my boss or my boss this or my boss. I never use that verbiage because I don't like to say that someone is the boss of me. It's just it's just this weird thing that I have. But at the time, I had no other choice. I had failed two businesses. I sucked apparently at becoming an entrepreneur. Like, let's be serious. And I had this job that was paying me over $90,000 a year and, and in sales. I was really good at it, you know, but it wasn't fulfilling my, 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 my true spirit. Like it wasn't anything that was like, it was, it was good for me. It was good for Gus. And that really killed me, man. Like it was something that I struggled with all the fucking time. You know, I had to sit there and put on a face and, and, and do all this corporate stuff. And, and I talked to my supervisor and said, hey, I want to move up in the corporate ladder. I remember after I had that conversation, I sat down and I damn near almost cried. And I'm not a crier, dude. Like I am like people who know me know that I don't show emotion like that because my dad was like that, you know. So for a man to show emotion, which is so fucked up, to be honest with you, because you should be able to show your emotions. But, you know. Uh, it's just the way it is. Like my old man is a, is an OG kind of guy. And I never saw him cry until his, his mom, my grandmother, uh, you know, was going through a really, really tough time health wise. And I saw him shed a tear and I was already like 16, 17. So imagine like, to me, something like that is some like, you know, men shouldn't cry is the way I was always taught. Now, of course, I know that nowadays that that's just simply not true, but the reality was at the time, I remember sitting there after I asked to move up in that corporate structure, I almost like broke down in tears sitting in my cubicle because I said, man, dude, like everything that I've always wanted to be, everything that I worked so hard for, I failed at it, bro. And I sucked at it. And it wasn't even like I was good. I was trash. You know what I mean? And and, and everyone told me I was going to fail and I did fail. So guess what? Maybe maybe this corporate life is for me. Maybe this is what I am really doing. But the sad reality of that image of me sitting in some sort of office would depress me, you know? And I had to go and live with those demons for months as I was trying to move up in the corporate structure. And so I remember a specifically a day where I was sitting down, I was looking at uh, you know, something on the inst- on in- on the internet. And I saw an advertisement uh, for a Cuban link chain, right? And this Cuban link chain was something that I ne- I never was a flashy dude, right? The only thing that I used to like was watches. I always used to like watches. My dad bought me a Casio G-Shock. And it was the watch that I loved. And I loved his watch. My grandfather had a watch with a moon phase. And I would always tell him that whenever he passed away, the one thing that I wanted from my grandfather was his moon phase watch. I used to love that watch. I don't even know what brand it was at the time. I'm sure it wasn't anything expensive, but I know that it had a moon dial on it. I loved it. So I loved watches, but I was never a flashy kind of guy. I'm not even a flashy guy now, really, to be honest with you. But I realized that like, you know, at the time I was like, oh, you know what, man? I want a gold chain, right? Like I want something. I want anything that's, you know, something, a Cuban link chain. And so I saw this advertisement on this Cuban link chain and I went there and started looking for anyone that could sell me a Cuban link chain. And at the time I didn't think at the, you know YouTube or anything like that it really didn't exist for people that had a platform on YouTube talking about Cuban link chains like I do now. So I was looking around and I was like, "Okay, well, let me look up how much a Cuban link chain is," right? And I remember being very very uh 
surprised at how much a Cuban link chain actually was worth and jewelry and gold chains in general. And so I was like, oh, dude, there's no way I'm going to spend five, $6,000 on a gold chain. Like I need to know that I absolutely love this thing. So what the hell was my plan? Like I have no, like, you know, I was, I was making good money. I can afford a chain or, or, you know, a gold chain or whatever, but I didn't really know where to get one. And I didn't know if I really wanted one. So I went down to this, uh, my, my people from Miami are going to know where I'm going to talk about. It's called La Veinte La Veinte, which is essentially on 20th and 20th. And uh, it's pretty much a street where all they do is just sell crazy merchandise. And let me explain to you. Let me paint this picture so you guys can really understand. It's maybe seven or eight blocks and it's nothing but like stores that wholesale, but they don't wholesale regular shit, right? They like one of the stores is called Walsan, which if you're from Miami, you understand like this Walsan is just like it sells like like baby clothes and like just the most randomest crap you can ever possibly think of. They sell like like fake like fake jewelry is sold there a lot. It, it, think of it kind of like a Canal Street in New York, but it's Cubans and they're in warehouses. Ba basically, it's kind of like that, right? So anything that you need, like fake, so you, you want like a Calvin Klein uh, perfume, but you don't really want to buy a Calvin Klein. You just go down there and it'll be like, you know, like a, like Guillermo Klein. You know what I'm saying? Like it's this super ghetto, like, uh, you know, you know, makeup shit. Right. And so I knew that they sold like fake chains there. So I went down there, I pulled up in my car, like a, like a loser. And I picked up this chain and it was like, I don't know, 20 bucks for the stainless steel crap. And I put it on and I was like, oh, damn. I remember looking at myself in the mirror in the in like in my car. And I thought I looked like the Latino Denzel Washington. You know what I'm saying? Like, I thought I looked kooky as all hell, you know? And I did it. You know, I look like <laughs> I look like a stupid idiot with a stainless steel fake chain on, you know? And whatever, that's that's the look I saw. And I was like, oh, yeah, okay, cool. Like, if I, I'm going to wear this chain, and if I still want it after two weeks, I'm going to buy a real one. Screw it. And so, of course, I bought a, I, I wore this chain. My neck was totally green. Like, the fading stuff. I knew that it was bad because I would put this thing on, and after two weeks, after the two weeks, I would start scratching my neck. Because, of course, it's a stainless steel and copper on you. Like, it's not supposed to be on you, and I'm scratching my neck. So I went there, and I got another one. Okay. Uh, and then I said, okay, cool. After, if after this two weeks, now it's a month, like, I, you know, now for sure I'm going to buy one. Fast forward two weeks later, I loved it. All I wanted to do, all I could think about was Cuban link chains. So I jumped on YouTube. I couldn't find anything really at the time, you know. So I went on there and I saw on Instagram because, of course, the, the, you know, Instagram marketing starts, you know, <laughs> some people think they listen to your phones, but they started putting ads on Instagram. And I saw this ad for this company and it, I clicked on it and the, the Instagram was like, you know, a Cuban link chain. I clicked on it. I went to their website and the website was just so sketchy, dude. So, I mean, this thing looked like, a, you know, backpages.com, like rub maps. You know what I'm saying? Like, this was just absolutely just a crappiest website. And I sat there and I looked at it, but the prices that were on the website were better than anybody else's. And I was like, oh, dude. This, this is too good to be true. I mean, this this is crap, right? So I was working at American Express. I was working specifically at the chargeback department. And so I said, you know what, bro? Like, ugh, this is so stupid what I'm going to do. I'm going to take out my American Express. Worst case scenario, 
you know, I just reported as fraud. If I don't ever get it, I'm just going to do it. And, and that's going to be it. Right. I'm just going to buy this because, you know, it's the cheapest I can find. I'm going to buy it put it on my card. Screw it. Let's do this. So I did it and I bought it and I bought from this shady ass website. And as I was driving home from American Express, I would get out usually around 10 and I was driving home and I get a phone call. And I get a phone call. And I'm like, oh, what's up? And then I'm like, hello. Like, it's a phone call from a local number. And I get a phone call. And, at the, it, you know, he says, hey, you know, my name is blah, blah, blah. This is something from Goldfever, Miami, which is how I started, which is how I got introduced. And I said, yo, yeah, man, what's up? And he was like, yeah, man, I just want to call you and let you know we appreciate your order. And when let you know that it takes about two weeks and we'll, we'll get you your order out. And I looked at him and I was like, bro. I didn't even think you were real, fool. Like, I didn't even think, like, how, like who even is this, number one? Are you legit, number two? And number three, your website, if you are legit, <laughs> looks like, you You know when you get the templates on, like, wish, like on wish.com of, like, I will build the website for you for $5. Like, that's what it looked. It was abysmal, abysmal of a website. So I let him know that straight up, and we just probably cracked up together for about maybe 10 minutes of just laughing and he was like listen man you know i am not a web page builder i know you know i sell i slang these chains um and ultimately like i'm legit as hell you know um but you know if you want you know after maybe an hour conversation he tells me yo um you know if you want i could show you the chain where is it that you live you know because we had gotten like pretty pretty comfortable with each other. And I was like, well, I live in Hialeah. He's like, what street do you live on? I told him the street. And he goes, no way, dude. I live, let's just say as an example, it was F- 5th Street. And he's like, I live on 8th Street. And I was like, what? So he's like, yeah, I live in East Hialeah, just like you do. And, he's, and, and we sat there and I was like, so if you live on East Hialeah, where is your house specifically? He goes, yo, it's right here. And I said, no way, dude, you literally live two and a half blocks away from me. And I was like, how long have you been there? And he's like, my whole life. And I'm like, motherfucker, I've lived here my whole life, you know? So it was this instant bonding moment that we had where we literally lived within, you know, a 30, if it's if it's more than a quarter mile, it'd be too much. It's, it's two and a half blocks away from each other, our entire lives. And here we are, we met up through this ad or through the website that I happened to discover. So he came over. And we chopped it up and we talked so much and we laughed and we had such a good time. And I let him know, hey, listen, man, I have this business that I had, which is where we would market. you what you don't know how to do right and that is take pictures very well because your website literally looks like al-qaeda build it right it is horrible and shady and dodgy at best so if you help me you know by giving me this thing at a discounted price or whatever i can help you i'll i'll go down there and i'll take some pictures of you making chains and the whole nine yards right and so that was how my jewelry world or my my foot into the jewelry that was my first day as an official jeweler and the way it worked out was i went over to the shop at the time we had some uh, they had some guys working on chains and i remember swinging the door open i had my tripod i had my lights i had my crazy camera rig with like two cameras and i was walking in there you know ready to shoot up a storm like it was a like it was a reality show you know what i'm saying 
I walked in there and all I see is a bunch of shirtless guys in a room <laughs> that was maybe 400 square feet. It was hot as hell. And they were like filing chains and, and like soldering chains. And the guy looked at me like, who the hell are you? You know what I'm saying? Like he had been hiding under a, a bridge like a troll for the past 30 years. It was this crazy look. And he's like, who the hell are you? You know? And I was like, what the hell is this, dude? Because I thought in my life, you know, everything was Harry Winston. You know, I thought it was like Van Cleef. Everything was beautiful. And like, you know, people would make, you know, jewelry with gloves. And it was like a Mercedes AMG dealership. You know what I'm saying? And all this crazy shit. And what I walk into looks like, you know, like a like a sweatshop. Like if I'm in downtown Beijing. You know what I mean? Like it was crazy. So I start taking pictures and I start doing all this stuff. Fast forward two, three, four, five days later, I realized that I'm taking pictures. I'm going down there every day. I don't know why. If you ask me right now, why did you help him and why did you get so much out of it? Or like, why did you volunteer so much of your time? I can't think of the reason why. I'm more convinced it was more maybe the relationship and the friendship that we built. But ultimately, what ends up happening is I start realizing that after two weeks, after three weeks, I'm literally taking pictures every day. And I'm running the Instagram account just like I had built two Instagram accounts before that. And so all of a sudden, he goes from having a crappy Instagram account, a crappy uh, 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 website, to me rebuilding the website. And the only thing that he could offer me at the time, he didn't have much money. But we sat down and he said, hey, listen, man, after about a month or so, sales started coming in. Like, he, he, you know, barely any sales had happened before that. But now sales are coming in. People are interested. The You know, people are sending uh, DMs, wanting to know prices, et cetera. We build the website and people are buying off the website, right? And now all of a sudden it starts to become something where one day we get a sale. And then four or five days later we get a sale. And then maybe a week later we get a sale, et cetera, et cetera. But the point is there's interest and there's like there's there's actual uh, bubbling of 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 like there's an energy going around us that we're saying, OK, cool, like this could potentially become something. So he couldn't pay any more for my time. And at the time, it's not like I had much you know, money to have anyway. I was working at American Express. I didn't really need the money from there. And I had already known that I wasn't going to continue on with CNG Media. So I was doing this by myself. And I told him, hey, he told me. Hey, I can't offer you anything more, but here's what I can do. I will teach you how to make chains and I will get you into this jewelry world and you have to just market me online because that's what I did and we have to look legit. So we started a partnership and that was the birth of my very first jewelry company called Gold Fever Miami. And a lot of people that are following me now know me from then, but that's ultimately how it started. It started from a chain that I purchased from him that I joined all my life experiences from with growing Instagram accounts and starting camera work. And we fused those two worlds together. And he said, I will teach you this and you will teach me that. And that's how it started. And in the beginning, it was rough. You know, all, all intents and purposes, let, let's be real. It was rough. It was not the greatest experience to begin with because we didn't have any money. You know, he had his job. I had my job and we were just two broke cats from Hialeah basically had failed at a couple of things. And all we had was a pipe dream. You know, it was like we would sit there and like drink beers in the back of his house and, you know, like think about and dream about how we were going to become these, you know, the next Tiffany and co, you know, and, and, and it was just a dream. We didn't really have it. But that's always what I've had, just dreams. And it wasn't really anything that I could put concrete two feet on the ground and say, okay, cool, this is a, a well-established business. 
So we started off by selling chains and selling, introducing the market to gold over silver, which a lot of people didn't really know what that was. But we would plate these chains and we would plate them in the back of his house. You know, it was it was no fancy operation. This wasn't, you know, like some nice warehouse again with white gloves. Like this was in the back of a crib in Hialeah, uh, you know, like a kind in a, in a backyard with a pot, and we would just do our best with what we had. But little by little, we started buying machines, right? We would buy a filing machine, and he would teach me, and I would teach him about how to take a picture and 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 et cetera. And and it got bigger in the sense of the backyard. And and we had a couple of things. And then we were able to hire one employee. And after that one employee, afterwards, we didn't even have money to pay him. We didn't have money to pay for ourselves, much less him. We would pay him $80 a day and he would work 12 hours. And I felt really bad, but I just, we didn't have any money to pay him outside of that. We weren't making sales enough to pay him like that. You know, so we had to do deal with what we had. And that's what we had. We had a couple of tools and we would just make chains back there. Right. And little by little, we got more and more chains and we were working in the backyard and we had this whole little operation with a bunch of ghetto ass tools. And one of the most important things happened to my life where we are talking about potentially renting a space. And as we're talking about potentially renting a space, me as being the conservative, I tell my business partner, hey, Let's not actually do this. Let's let's just stay here for as long as we can, outwork this place, and then we'll get bigger. And just as I told him that, call it divine intervention, call it whatever the hell you want. I don't care. I just call it coincidence at the time. This huge storm rolls in. I kid you not. It, it was more so the wind gust. And this wind gust starts blowing in maybe two to three minutes later, starts blowing in like a movie and blows our entire carp and our tools and just throws everything everywhere. So now there's silver on the floor. There is tools all over the grass. It was like like a straight-up tornado had happened. And we sat there and we said, you know what? If that's not a goddamn sign, I don't know what is. So the next day, two days later, we opened up our shop. And there was the birth of Gulf Fear Miami being an actual business in a shopping plaza. And that's how we started And that's really where I began to think to myself, okay, you know, this is not just a dream. This is now becoming a reality. And I thank him for that because a lot of times I had a lot of self-doubt in my mind. And and I didn't really know how to do things with a determination that was unwavering. And a lot of times I had, uh, you know, thoughts of not only self-doubt, but more so I would second guess myself in a lot of situations. And I had to learn from someone else who had a very bullish mentality on how to make those decisions with, without any fear with, with anybody who said, but number two, without fear of failure. And I was so insanely scared of failing that I genuinely couldn't have the self-confidence to run the business by myself in the beginning. So we started off with two employees, with one employee, then we got a second one. We had this huge 1,500 square foot warehouse, and we started off really like building everything ourselves. Again, we didn't have the profits. We didn't have anything to build it. So we started off slow. We would do the work ourselves. I had to lay sheetrock. I don't know. If you know me and anybody who's listening to this podcast understand and knows me, I suck at building everything anything with my hands. I cannot do it. Tell me to make a chain. I'll make a chain for you. But to actually sit there and make something out of nothing, like, you know, there's some people that look at it like, 
IKEA furniture and they look at me like, oh, son, I got you, fam. Give me 20 minutes and a screwdriver and this thing will be just up and running, right? That's not me, papa. I suck at it. And I was sitting there doing electrical wiring, like just obviously following someone doing electrical wiring. I wasn't knowing how to do it. I was hanging up drywall. I was putting up like uh, sound padding. I was doing all this stuff that I was forced to do because I just didn't have any other choice. We didn't have the money to pay somebody else to do it. So we had to build this warehouse from scratch. Fast forward, months and months went by and the business started really taking off. I would do these Instagram lives and I would go on Instagram and show and showcase everything that I had learned because I would see the other competition out there, which was other people selling jewelry. And I realized that they didn't have what I had, which is I knew how to shoot professionally and I had professional cameras and I knew what people liked. I knew the ASMR aspect of Instagram. I knew what would grow an Instagram account because I had done it so many times before. So we went from not doing anything to now making hundreds of thousands of dollars in sales per month. And for someone who is, you know, young, for someone who's never seen this kind of money before, for someone who has a business partner that also doesn't know that kind of money, you know, we made so many mistakes, right? We, we, took so many things for granted and we got ourselves in very very highs and very very lows because we didn't understand business you have to see it from a perspective of like here are these two cats young who have now are controlling a million dollar business to you know two three years before that we were just sitting in our houses scratching our balls in our living room you know it's a huge learning curve and it's one that I can genuinely tell you is probably the greatest teacher of anything that I do from now on for the rest of my life and maybe I'm going to learn a lot more and fail a lot more but ultimately you know the learning curve that I had there was something that I that is worth to me a billion dollars because from the failures and the ups and downs and the scares and the whole process that I went through you know working at that company it was it was something that I can't really quantify in a hour and a half podcast. It's something where you just had to see it or 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 live it to really understand it. But I learned how to deal with money. I learned how to have money. I learned also how to um, deal with different types of personalities under my control or under my management. Um, after years went by, I realized that a lot of the connections and a lot of the visions that we both started off with um, weren't aligning anymore. And, you know, you have a vision as a business owner of one thing and the other person in a partnership when you go 50-50 with them may have a completely different one. And there became one of the hardest decisions I've ever had to make in my life, which was, you know, carry on the success of this business that is doing well, that we're cultivating, that we built like a baby. Imagine this project that you put so much time and effort and and want and this, this, this insatiable uh, desire for success with it, having built it from literally nothing to saying, hey, man, like, I, our views don't align anymore, not in a good way or not in a bad way where, you know, the friendship has to ultimately matter more. Um, and I think I touched on that with my partnership before that, but, you know, 
do you want to break away from this and do things on your own? Because the way I saw it, and this is just me being vulnerable and truthful and doing all this, is like I always wanted this to be something that I solely owned and I wanted it to be look and have a certain aesthetic and have a certain goals and morals and vision and values. And he had a different one that was similar, but in his own way. And my vision and his just weren't aligning anymore. And so I had to make that decision on whether I wanted to start on my own. But how? You know, I had, we had $100,000 in equipment. We had all this book of client of people that trusted in the brand. We had all this social media content out there. You know, how was I going to start on my own? Um, and you know what? And I credit a lot of it to for him because... You know, that one skill I think that I needed to just launch it on my own was my determination and my like bullish mentality to go through any sort of obstacle and and say, okay, you know what? You are the man. You are going to make right decisions. You're going to make some bad ones, but ultimately it's going to lead to something because now you know you could do it. It's like learning how to catch a ball. You know what I mean? Most of the time it's just the nerves that you get right before the ball touches your hand and you get all nervous and you fumble the ball or whatever, but after repetition, you know that you can catch it. So it doesn't matter from where they throw it, you're going to be able to catch that ball. It was the same thing when I launched my business. I started Gus Villa Jewelry with essentially no money, right? I left, I, I signed over my half of the business. It was the hardest decision to tell him, to tell the employees, to tell everybody that I cared for. We became a family in there. Everybody that I cared for that I was going to leave. Because now I was like, <laughs> I was like that divorced parent, you know, that was like, hey, listen, I love you guys, but I'm going to go do my own thing. It was essentially like that. It was, it was hard. You know, I had to tell a lot of people a lot of things that, you know, I had to be, tr I had to be truthful with myself because it's something that I wanted to. And I had to be truthful with a lot of people I cared for. And ultimately the decision was, I want to do this on my very own because I want my company to be a certain you know, vision. And I know that that the only way that I can accomplish that is by doing things solely on my own. So I left, you know, I left and, and I left with no money. Really. I had the money that I had made, but it wasn't enough to start like a, like a jewelry business and do everything that I had. I grabbed all my equipment and I left and I moved locations and I opened up the, my own location and I had my, and I got, you know, at the time it was like three people that I knew how to make chains myself and one employee that was selling. And that's how I started. And that's how I started Gus Villa Jewelry, like with really nothing substantial to fall back on. You know, there was the first three weeks where I wouldn't pay myself and I was scrubbing by just to make payroll. You know, this is actually what happened. I'm not sugarcoating it. This is what I keep always saying. Like, this is what really starting a business is all about, whether it be jewelry or whether it be, you know, a nail salon, whether it be a hair a barber shop, whatever the hell it is. This is how you start. Right. You have to be OK with being at zero. And I was OK with that. But it's not until you eat so much shit before that you realize that it's not that deep, you know, and I started this not knowing how I was going to pay people. And I would make a sale here from someone that would just walk into the shop. I would make a sale and I would pay all the employees in the beginning. And then I would do another sale and I used to pay everybody. 
and I wouldn't pay myself, you know, and a month would go by and in two months and I was, you know, no, nobody knew who Gus Villa Jewelry is. Everybody knew who my last company was, but no one knew, oh, Gus Villa Jewelry, right? They didn't, had no idea. I wasn't on YouTube. There was no reviews about me. I wasn't on Instagram. Everything was zero. I started with nobody. And I don't say that so I'd be like, oh, look how cool you are. What I'm saying is that I say it more so because I was scared shitless. You know, having all this, you know, notoriety on online and people knowing you to not having anything is is a daunting, daunting feeling. And to begin with, when you don't have money and you don't have payroll and you don't have all these things, you have to put your head down and just believe in yourself. Fuck what everybody tells you. Fuck what anybody suggests. I used to talk to people who I dealt with on an everyday basis and they'd be like, why are you going to leave, man? That's crazy. That's so stupid. Why would you do that? You know what I mean? And it's just because of that feeling that you have to bet on yourself. And the way it grew was post by post on Instagram. That's how I did it. You know, I would post every day and maybe one video. I remember I used to tell my friends, like, I'm posting all this awesome content to get only five views. And and like, I remember having a post and it would be like, oh, cool. Like you have 17 likes. That was like a big thing for me. You know what I mean? And that's, that's how I started. And I would just continuously be persistent in posting good content. And then you would get these people who believed in you to start buying your chains. And then little by little, that snowball became bigger and bigger. And then in four months, I was able to buy more machines. And then in five months, I was able to buy a nice office. And we put computers in the office. And now we had employees coming in and out, uh, running you know, things. And, and again, in the back of my mind, I'm now thinking, okay, Gus, like you failed at three businesses now. You know, and and what makes you think that this isn't going to be the same? That self creep and that self doubt come into your mind, just like it does in any sort of situation that you're in. You know, it's it's only human nature. And the thing, the only thing that kept me a, like afloat ultimately was number one, I knew I wanted this, and I knew I wanted to bet on myself, and I knew I wanted to create it. But to go back full circle, and that's the reason I tell that story in the beginning, is because. I'm the son of immigrant parents, right? And they came here to do something special with their lives. Now, whether they feel like they accomplished it or not, I do because I'm the son of them, right? And I know that the struggles that they went through, and it's the one thing that I could genuinely tell you that motivates me every day. It's why I push so hard to become successful because I always want to make them know that what they sacrificed was worth it, right? That what they did, all the risks that they put in their lives was actually worth a shit. You know, it's something that they did that they can die, you know, in their deathbeds and say, all right, I did it. You know, it's like that animal, I don't know if it's the octopus or whatever, that once it dies, its body becomes food for its kids so that they can have enough energy to leave the den and, and go off and be octopuses, right? Or, what, or whatever fucking animal it is. It's, it's something that I do that pushes me because I want to ultimately let them know that all their sacrifices, everything that they did was worth it. You know what I mean? So without getting all emotional and all weird about it, that is ultimately how I got to the section or the place where I'm at now. It's your ability to push through any self-doubt and 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 that fear and that that everything that tells you not to go and open that door 
And if you just push through it, eventually, if you work hard enough and you sacrifice time and, you, and you're hard at pushing for a goal, you are going to fucking get there, man. And it's scary. And there's a lot of ups and downs, mostly downs, you know, but ultimately you can get to where you want to be. You know, I grew this company from having nothing to now we do well over anywhere from $150,000 to $250,000 in revenue every single month. And I don't say that to sound like, oh, look how much bread I have because I don't because that doesn't mean that's just the gross sales, right? That's a very inflated number. But to tell people that this is like I'm able to live comfortably now because of it, you know, I don't have a boss. I am the boss and I do that, but because I have an fucking outstanding team that works their asses off every single day to make me look like the the successful person right i am insanely lucky to have them and i'm i'm insanely grateful for them and mostly i'm grateful for the people listening and the people that support gus villa jewelry you know shout out to my boy angel uh kuano sorry i don't i didn't mean to say your name but um he put out a video that really blew up my Instagram and my business and everything really um, along with all the other efforts that we did. But he has this thing where he says, support the people that support you. Right. And I genuinely believe in that. Like the reason I'm here is because there's so many people that buy my chains and it's the people that listen to this podcast right now. It's because I'm so lucky to have people that, you know, number one, fuck with me, but number two, like, you know, spend their hard-earned money on anything that I put out. So that's the story of Gus Villa Julie. That's the story of me. There's a lot to be told after that. And maybe there's a lot of things that I missed out on, but I wanted to tell the story to you guys to get the gist of it and to understand that you can make it. If there's someone listening to this podcast, there's someone listening to this in a car, at your crib, in a, in a fucking cubicle, and you have a dream of whatever it is that you want to do, man, you are listening to someone that was in the exact same position as you, the exact same position, just a dream and a bunch of failures. And the only reason why I made it, the only reason, and again, I haven't made it, but you know what I mean? The only reason I've had success is because I genuinely did not stop trying. And that's the only message that I want to leave with you guys uh, today, you know, so Anyway, man, I know I've rambled off for, Jesus, an hour and 30 minutes. And uh, if you stuck around this long, man, I appreciate it. Um, I'm going to wrap up this this podcast by once again thanking you guys. Uh, thank you for listening to the story. If you guys have any questions about me or anything about Gus Villa Jewelry in general, whatever it is, let me know. Um, yeah, and uh, we'll catch you guys in the next podcast. I don't really know how to, you know, a non-awkward way of ending this podcast, but... You know, I appreciate it. I love you guys, and uh, we'll see you next time, bro.